Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backchat. 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 Your alternative to talk back. It's Saturday, 24th of October, and you're listening to Backchat, where we break down the news you don't want to miss. I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. And I'm Chantelle Alkuri. First up, Sydney Uni's SRC president, Liam Donoghue, is chatting to us about police violence and the right to protest for student activists. After that, we're chatting with small business owner, Ankita Agarwal, on how we can be eco-conscious after COVID. It's all about the small stuff, you know, that adds up to make the bigger picture. But as always, we want to hear from you. What do you think about the increased police presence at protests? Join in on the conversation and text us in on 0409 945 945 or you can tweet us at Backchat FBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. This semester, it's been cool for students to attend in-person classes, sometimes with more than 30 people in them. But until yesterday, if you wanted to protest on the same campus, you could have been slapped with a fine or even arrested. Police have been recorded using excessive force at these rallies, including dislocating a woman's wrist, breaking a phone and even throwing a student into the gutter. The last couple of months have been a showdown for student activists who have been challenging uni fee hikes staff job cuts and the right to protest. Here to break down police violence on his campus recently is University of Sydney Student Representative Council President Liam Donoghue. Liam, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So what we're hearing from UCID students is that police were asking them if they were eating lunch or if they were protesting. And if they were eating lunch, then, you know, they were given a pass. But if they were protesting, they were told to move on. What other double standards have you seen recently? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a good question. That's a particularly absurd example, but actually plenty of others come to mind. I mean, people probably are already aware that thousands of people are able to go to the beach, thousands of people are at big shopping centres, and tomorrow there are going to be 40,000 people at the NRL Grand Final. But I think the most absurd example is the one that you foreshadowed in the introduction, which is a situation where students can be leaving classes of 30, 40, even in some cases 60 people that are inside where people aren't wearing masks and then they can leave that class and they can walk a couple metres down the road to an environment which is open where everyone is wearing masks and which uh, has really, really strict social distancing enforced. And somehow in the process of moving from the more unsafe location to the safer location, they have run afoul of the law and risk being brutalised by the police. And that ultimately comes down to the fact that the police use this really metaphysically dubious idea that because people have a vaguely common purpose, they should count together. So even if they're hundreds of metres away, for some reason we should count them as contributing towards a group of more than 20 people. And it's really odd because, like, clearly this virus doesn't just, like, magically teleport between people. Clearly it has absolutely no regard or awareness of what people's political beliefs are. So it is a really absurd double standard, and it applies not just at the University of Sydney campus, but all around. And it's just good that the public is finally starting to realise what we've been up against for the past few months. So yesterday, the New South Wales government quietly announced that up to 500 people can attend a protest. What did it take from Sydney protesters to achieve this? I think it took a lot of bravery. Um, It took sacrifice and ultimately it took defiance. Um, It took over $50,000 in fines, people being brutalised, as we've already alluded to. We've seen some of that footage. And ultimately, it took people being brave enough to stand up for what they believed, even though they knew that it was probably likely to incur this sort of wrath. 
Ultimately, though, I think the breakthrough came in the past few weeks with some of the increased media coverage that we've been seeing. As I've kind of already said, people have been doing this for months and a lot of it went without notice. But as soon as the media started paying attention, we started to see the public conversation shift and now we've seen actual outcomes in the parliament. Um, but ultimately, what it came down to was individuals with really important beliefs or, or beliefs that they consider really important standing up for them in the face of oppression. And on that note, are you happy with this win or do you think there's more that needs to change? Um, I'm, I, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm happy with it on some level because it, it, it goes to show that we've had some success, we've been able to achieve some compromise, but I still think there's a lot more that needs to be done. That's kind of for two reasons. The first is that there's a theoretical question about whether the police should even have the power to decide when protests can and can't happen. So if you kind of think about it, it really does defeat the point of a protest if the people we're protesting, i.e. the state or the police, have the power to decide whether or not you can protest them. Kind of defeats the purpose. And even before the pandemic, we had a pretty big problem with police suppression of protests. And a return to the status quo, in, in my view at least, would not be a, a massive win. And then the second, uh, the, the second thing to say, I think, is that the limits do make it really hard to achieve anything. Because at the end of the day, it's pretty rare for a small protest of, you know, a couple hundred people to actually win anything. If you look at the protests that have been successful historically, there are normally thousands of people. And a polite 500-person gathering, you know, might make us feel good. But it's probably not what we need right now to, you know, get the really deep reforms and revolutions uh, that we need to uh, address many of the immediate issues of the coronavirus. So obviously it's good. It's a reflection of the work that we've done. And it's, you know, good to finally get a win after many months of brutalization. But at the same time, we need to be going much, much further if we want to address the pretty deep, you know, structural problems that we have in society. So previously health orders banned gatherings of 20 or more people. Uh, so in your opinion, though I can possibly hazard uh, what your answer might be, uh, how much was shutting down student protests uh, to do with social distancing? Well, I think it's important to be really clear from the outset that student protesters and, and the people I'm involved with have absolutely no qualms with social distancing requirements or public health orders. We are very respectful of those and we are not anti-maskers who want to challenge science or challenge the authority of the government to implement those types of, th types of things. But ultimately, we think that at a certain point, this was no longer about health. And, and there are kind of a few reasons for that, I think. The first is that research shows that there are really very few cases linked to protests, especially in Australia. And that's for kind of common sense reasons compared to other things that go on. Uh, it's not that unsafe. It's outdoors. It's pretty easy to get people to space out between each other. And we can enforce mask wearing and sanitizer use really easily. So it's not really, uh, there isn't really evidence, uh, that much evidence to suggest it's all that unsafe. Second thing is the way we did it was particularly safe, as I've kind of said, like mandatory mask usage, everyone had to register before. But third, and this is kind of the kicker, is that there are much, much unsafer activities that are being committed. We've already talked about some of those examples and double standards. I won't reca recap them. Um, and ultimately, the police getting involved made it less safe because that's what led to cramping. That's what led to people, you know, essentially fleeing to their, to their livelihoods in some cases. And those types of activities, that sort of crowding is what makes things unsafe. So we didn't feel that safety was improved. We certainly didn't feel social distancing was improved because people were more densely cramped uh, as a result of the police's involvement. So it probably wasn't just about health. Uh, it was probably about something else. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio. We're speaking with Sydney Uni's SLC President Liam Donoghue on police repressing the right to protest on campuses. Earlier we asked you what you think about the increased police presence at protests and we've got a few texts in. A text has sent in 40,000 people were at ANZ Stadium 
20, then 30, now 500 to protest. That is neoliberal fascism. Wow. Wow. <laughs> um, and we, have a, we have a few more. Uh, Moe from Liverpool says, I don't understand the double standard. If I can have beers with my boys on rugby weekends, why can't I protest? Uh, I feel like that's the kind of the same question you have there, um, Liam. Uh, and we also have absolutely. We also have a text from Yana in Lewisham, who says went to Broadway shopping centre last week and it was packed. And twenty-year-olds are getting fined for socially distanced protests just around the corner. Uh, it it does seem a little bit of a double standard, uh, but more so the officers at these protests have been increasingly violent over time in the way they've been enforcing their rules. Uh, last week they mobilised in full force at UCID, but um, when do you think the tension started to pick up? Yeah, uh, that's, that's a good question. Back in May, we started protesting again. And when I say we, I mean student activists and staff members. Those protests were very, very small, you know, basically a handful of people, and they were really socially distanced. And yet even back then, the cops were already harassing us and making life really difficult for us. I think what really changed the game, though, was the Black Lives Matter protests in June. Uh, I think what really happened, if, if you want my conspiracy theory, the, I think the Premier was just concerned, essentially, with A, having to make political concessions during this time period, and B, with the Conservative press dragging her through the coals for being you know, too soft on the cultural Marxist protesters. And as a result, there was basically a top-down order to crush protests or to not let protests happen, really under any circumstances. Uh, and that was all the way back in June. And as a result of the way that the police behaved at those BLM rallies, where they brutalized so many people and they, you know, they, they basically militarized against the broader population, they were really, really emboldened. And they were basically given a blank check to do the same thing and to implement the same methods at any protest. So we've been dealing with this really since June. Any education protest that we've tried to organize has been dealt with pretty much the exact same way. And when you give the police a blank check, to suppress and, uh, you know, essentially mess with uh, people they already don't like in, in the form of lefties and students, they're going to be brutal about it. They basically see it as practice for cage fighting. And, and people here have seen the footage uh, of, of what happens uh, when they do that. But really, we've been dealing with this from the start. This, this isn't exactly a new phenomenon, although the level of violence has actually escalated recently. But, you know, people were getting brutalized all the way back in July when we first started protesting. And it's estimated over $50,000 worth of fines were given out to protesters in recent months. Do you think if, do you know if any of those were uh, legally challenged? Yeah, a a heap of them are being legally challenged right now. Not all of them, but a a lot of them are. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. So now that you can, Liam, regroup in larger numbers, uh, what is next for student activists at Sydney Uni? Yeah, really good question. Uh, Obviously, we're going to be taking advantage of the larger numbers, and that's because there are still a lot of things that need to be won. In fact, uh, really nothing has been won, and everything has been lost so far. So specifically at UCID, what we want to do is we want to reverse cuts to courses, so we want students to have more choice over the courses that they can pick. We want to increase the staff-to-student ratio because 40-person tutorials are a disgrace. And we're also demanding that UCID does not pay on, uh, pass on any fee increases because ultimately they actually get to decide whether they do that. But beyond that, what we're really trying to fight for is free, fully publicly funded higher education. That's the aim and ambition of the SRC, and that is pretty much always our goal. And even though it might seem ambitious, I think that if we come out in large enough numbers and really demonstrate our strength, maybe not just once, but over a kind of period of time, then we can actually win that. 
And of course, it's not just about education as well. Um, you know, students and young people are really struggling through the pandemic. We're some of the worst affected demographics. I think, frankly, we have a lot to complain and protest about. There's going to be a really big protest on November the 3rd uh, at UCID. So I implore absolutely everyone to come out to that. Um, because, you know, we do have a lot to protest. And now that we know the police can't be as oppressive, I think there's not really the same excuses that we used to have. So I look forward to seeing everyone there. Liam, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. No, thank you for having me. That was Student Representative Council President Liam Donoghue from the University of Sydney. We discussed the state government's decision to allow protests of 500 people and how that will impact student activists. Yeah, I still can't believe that 40,000 people can go to an NRL game this weekend, but students are being fined $1,000 each for protesting in groups of less than 20. Yeah, that's a bit insane, but thank goodness those concessions were introduced by the government, even if, you know, it's not perfect. Absolutely. So stay tuned because after the break, we're talking sustainability and how we can be better consumers with Ankita Agawal from Plaswitch, who has created a business prioritising the environment's future. We'll be right back after this track. This is You Say, my gold link featuring Tyler, the creator and Jay Prince. You're listening to Backdown and FBI. Language warning on this one. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. Do you ever get stuck in that cycle of climate change anxiety? So then you go full-blown eco-warrior and then you burn out. But then before you know it, you're crawling back to your single-use plastic. Look, I think a lot of us have been guilty of that. Oh, good. It's not just me. (laughs) No, absolutely not. But uh, Ankita Agawal is the founder behind Plaswitch, a local e-biz that's encouraging others to take responsibility for, for their carbon footprint. And luckily, she's joining us today to explain what it means to be an eco-friendly individual and how we can do good by the environment. Good morning, Ankita. Thanks for coming on the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. So what was the turning point for you becoming more environmentally conscious? Um, yeah, so I think it was a few years ago, um, I started getting more and more educated on the matter and it's pretty shocking. Um, so, like, for example, Australia is a small country, but we contribute to 373 million bottles in the ocean every year. So, um, yeah, just when I started learning about all that, I thought, you know what, I don't want to be a part of this. Um, yeah, strolled into a, a lovely, beautiful, eco-friendly store and saw this gorgeous bottle with a tropical print and elephants on it, uh, checked out and bought it, and I realized it was actually $60, um, which actually makes me a bit sick to think about it now, because, um, yeah, when, when I bought it, I thought, do you know what, I actually don't want to tell my parents that I spent $60 on a steel water bottle, because, um, yeah, look, my parents are from a fairly humble background, you know, typical immigrant story came to Australia, not watch money, and they probably would have spent $60 to feed the family in a fortnight back in the day. Um, So, yeah, I was kind of looking at my bottles thinking, it's great, it's almost like an eco-friendly symbol, but it's almost also a bit of a privileged symbol, um, which just, it didn't sit quite right. So, yeah, I started thinking, okay, well, how much does this bottle actually cost to produce? And me being me from a business background, started looking up all this stuff and that's kind of how Plaswitch started. I wanted to make products that were environmentally friendly but accessible to anyone and, and most 
Australians. I love that. And when you were researching Plus Switch, um, what were some of the discrepancies you did notice about products um, that were traditionally considered eco-friendly? Yeah, so you actually uncover quite a bit. Uh, obviously, you know, you've got your $60 bottles and stuff, but then you've got your um, department stores that you go in. And what consumers or shoppers don't see is when you walk in and you see this beautiful display of these bottles in a pyramid, um, they don't know that it actually arrived on this huge pallet that was wrapped in a lot of plastic. And actually, each individual bottle comes in a plastic slip. So um, these are things that you know people in the back have to remove before they make this beautiful display for you. So that was actually one of the hardest things to me when I started Plastwitch because I had to kind of go back to the suppliers and say, no, I don't want this packaging and replace this plastic with paper, which is actually quite hard to do, which I can sort of see why businesses avoid doing that as part of their business model. So how can others make their business models more sustainable? Yeah, so um, I think... So my, my thing with me is I, I hate that eco-friendly is even a word. So there's, there's so much um, pressure on consumers to make eco-friendly choices, but businesses should just have it as a way of working. Uh, but in order to get there, obviously, it requires a lot of time and um, research. But I would my advice to other businesses would be um, definitely just start small and see um, what part of your business can you change? So is it the supply chain? Is it the logistics? Is it the product itself? And it doesn't have to be perfect tomorrow, but you know, maybe have a five-year plan or a two-year plan of how can you get there because you want your business to be alive 100 years from now and you want it to be responsible 100 years from now. Um, yeah, so that would be my advice. I love that. Great advice because I know even just as a consumer, I feel pretty overwhelmed with wanting to be sustainable. So wonderful yeah. business advice. Uh, so prior to PlusWitch, you've worked for pretty large corporations and some of those companies do greenwash. That's the term, right? Greenwash their product, yeah. um, which is deceiving consumers. So how can people check that their money is actually supporting sustainability and isn't just this, you know, profit markup? Yeah. So again, it sucks that consumers even have to check this, but um, if you can, what I would say is um, so a lot of the uh, consumer goods that you buy are owned by the same parent company. So what I would advise everyone to do is turn around the bottle of whatever you're buying and have a look at what the parent company is and go on their website, see if they have a sustainability mission. And the most important thing is actually are they partnering with an NGO? So the reason why that's really important is because these companies, I mean, they were made hundreds of years ago when sustainability wasn't even a thing. So if they're partnering with an NGO, it means that they have someone on board that's a neutral third party looking at their practices and actually giving them like non-biased feedback on how to improve their business. Um, Yeah, so I would give that advice. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio. We're talking to PlusWitch founder Ankita Agarwal about sustainability and eco-friendly business models. So, Ankita, there's definitely a sense of anxiety, right, around being perfect when it comes to reducing your carbon footprint. Is perfection even achievable achievable anyway? (laughs) It's, look, it's all about reducing your carbon footprint, right? So, my biggest thing about this anxiety is, 
the first and most important thing you can do is ditch the label. Stop labeling yourself as someone that's carbon neutral or vegan or eco-friendly or anything like that because being eco-friendly or carbon neutral or whatever, it's like losing weight or quitting smoking. Like, you're not going to be perfect. And if you stuff up, it's okay. But the point is that you're making better changes than the person that's probably accusing you for stuffing up anyway. Um, so, yeah, that was, that's my take on that. <laughs> Look, that advice I know was centered around uh, you know, the anxiety around eco-friendliness, but to me that mm. was just a general life mantra that I'm going to take on. Just don't be too hard on myself, so thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. So the effects of climate change are disproportionately felt by communities of colour and Indigenous people, and you did mention earlier that it was quite hard um, for for people like you and your parents um, to make sustainable choices um, coming from an immigrant background. So what was your takeaway from that experience? Yeah, um, like obviously being more environmentally conscious is an absolute must for us as Australians. But if you're thinking about being environmentally conscious, you're probably not thinking about when you're going to pay your rent and what you're going to eat. So my takeaway from that is Honestly, just check your privilege and um, if, if you are in the position to be more environmentally conscious, make those small changes that I mentioned. But if you're not, do you know what? Reuse that plastic bag until it tears and just reuse, reuse whatever you can because we actually find people that uh, might not have a lot of money, sometimes they're the most innovative of themselves. So do what you can to make a difference regardless of what your pay bracket is. And what's one easy, practical thing that we can all do to be more eco-friendly post-COVID? Ah, okay. So, (laughs) during COVID, it's pretty obvious that everyone is comfortable with panic buying. Um, My advice from that, and it might be a bit alarming, but actually continue to bulk buy if you can. The reason why I say that is, say if you take shampoo as an example, if you buy a huge bottle of shampoo versus lots of tiny, tiny little bottles. The packaging per mill is actually a lot less and you're saving yourself money too. So the dollars per mill is a lot less too. So if you can, if you have the money and if you can have the storage, bulk buy where you can to save the planet and save your wallet really. Thank you so much for joining us today and for all your advice, Ankita. Thanks for having me. That was founder Ankita Agarwal from Plus Switch talking to us about how we can start making those small steps in our everyday decisions. And that's all the time we have on the show today. Massive thank you to our guests, Liam Donahue and Kita Agarwal. And this episode of Back Chat was brought to you by Tanita Razagi, Millie Roberts and Rebecca Manabog. We'll catch you at 9.30am next Saturday. But before we go, we've got a song. I love this one from Sydney artist Kwame. It's Stop Knocking At My Door. Have a great weekend. Bye.